Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me is John Protevi, Phyllis M. Taylor, Professor of French Studies and Professor of Philosophy at Louisiana State University. And he is here to talk with us about Darwin, disaster, and prosociality. John Protevi, welcome. Thanks, Matt. I'm very glad to be here. So disaster is kind of an interesting topic that you don't see a lot in the philosophy journals. Uh, What's philosophically interesting about disasters? Well, I think it shows a number of things about uh, both the human nature presuppositions and politics. What we can see in when we actually look at what the social scientists say about disasters, especially people at the University of Delaware Disaster Research Center, they find very little individualistic, every man for himself, panic behavior, which you might expect if human beings really were rational egoists, that is, people who calculate what the cost-benefit analysis of any uh, action would be relative to what's in it for them or their close relatives, let's say. And if you take that view of human nature, then you would think that the state is needed in order to shift the balance of the cost-benefits such that people will not prey upon their fellow humans, will not steal, will not do this or that, because the chance of getting caught and punished more severely than the benefits of the act would be will impress upon their decisions such that they'll refrain from these so we can set up a cost-benefits system within society via the state power. So in a disaster, then, you would see the breakdown of the state power that is going to shape the cost-benefit structures impinging on individual rational decision-making. And uh, hence, you would see an uptick in predation, theft, stealing, etc., etc. But what the social scientists have found, these uh, sociologists, basically, surveying lots of disasters, have found, in fact, lots of cooperation, very little panic, and, in fact, if anything, what you need to do is shock people out of a sort of lethargy that they get into and a vast conformity that they'll stick together and, you know, kind of herd behavior. So the, an old anarchist point here is that, well, what the state is really doing is imposing individuality and competition on people such that the breakdown of the state reveals the cooperation that lies beneath. Now, these are very broad-brush descriptions. Obviously, there is some panic sometimes in disaster situations. Fire in a crowded space is not really conducive to cooperation. But we do, by and large, find lots and lots of examples of a situation in which there's no state power present that you find lots of uh, pro-social behavior. So, for instance, in the 9-11 towers, 
it wasn't every man for himself scrambling down the towers, I'm going to get out and you, you stand in my way, I'm going to get over the top of you. No, apparently all the testimony from the people in the towers testified to a vast cooperative, collaborative effort to get everybody down. In fact, what you needed to do mostly is to get people up and out away from their desks from in the sort of state of shock where they needed to get uh, get moving. So disasters can be interesting that way, I think, in revealing what you would expect to find and what you actually do find as revealing certain sets of presuppositions about human nature and on the basis of that, what politics is for. I've done some work on uh, media reports on the uh, Haitian earthquake. There's also reports you can do a lot, quite a bit, about Hurricane Katrina. But in Haiti, there's a a couple of nice clips. So Fox News, hysterical, meaning in the non-sexist sense of the word, reporting about Haiti on the brink of anarchy, 4,000 escaped inmates roaming the streets, reports of bodies stacked up as roadblocks. I mean, it's really amazing, amazing stuff. And in the background of the this news report is, in fact, a bunch of guys who are kind of wandering around, talking to each other, maybe gesticulating about uh, what are we going to do next. But they don't have any actual clips of bodies or machetes or escaped inmates or anything like that. Now, CNN had a much nicer, a more realistic report, not just nicer, whereby they talked with um, Russell Honoré, who is the uh, general in charge of the uh, Haiti, uh, of the Katrina relief effort. And he gave a really interesting point. What he said is that the Haitian people were their own first responders. And what the role of the military in organizing the relief effort should be catalyzing an already present cooperative pro-sociality on the part of the Haitian people so that the fire and the police and the EMTs and the military are the second responders. So what the disaster revealed underneath of a sort of competitive everydayness when you have to scramble to make a living and you're competing against everyone else, in fact, when that breaks down, what you see is not more individual competition, but this reversion to cooperation. Now, you can say that that's a rational calculation on the part of the people realizing that they needed to work together in order to survive. Right? So you can always bring back any kind of behavior to a rational calculation of cost and benefits relative to the context in which people find yourself in. So I don't want to oppose rational calculation to this pro-social behavior, but I think that you can definitely note the way in which there's much less violence in the individual behavior than would be predicted. So I guess the underlying idea here would be that a disaster serves as a kind of test for what people's natures really are, because in a disaster, the coercive power of a government is temporarily suspended or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's when people's real feelings and emotions and behaviors come out, you know, what they would do unfettered by the coercive power of, you know, mm-hmm. of government. Right. So you just presented two, I think, conflicting takes on the relation between people's sort of natural behavior and the behavior they're forced into by legal authority. So the one picture is people are naturally inclined to be warlike and just, you know, me, me, me all the time. And it's the job of the government to kind of rein that in and get Mm -hmm. people to cooperate with each other. Mm -hmm. The other picture is that 
people are naturally inclined to be cooperative, and it's the job of the government to kind of break that cooperation up into a social hierarchy where people at different tiers of the hierarchy obey each other. Which of those pictures do you think is right? Thanks. Uh, Well, it's a complicated situation. I want to watch out for saying that disasters reveal what human nature is in some sort of simple and clear way. At the end of the day, I do think that humans are open to their social situation and their bodily and emotional structures have been shaped by the history of the social interactions they've had. So let's come back to Hobbes. Hobbes is not really describing the state of nature. He's describing the state of England during the Civil War. When, yes, you've got warlordism and you've got gangs. It's not really every man for himself. He, in the Leviathan, he does say that you can get temporary alliances of warlords and their followers. And, but none of the warlords can be safe because, as we, in one of the great lines of all of Western philosophy, no man is so strong that he can't be killed in his sleep, something along those lines. But what we do see, I think, that is the way in which modern states' authorities do produce an individualism that they use retrospectively to justify their presence, their top-down presence. We can see this in a small scale in police actions. Security people and police people know that if you arrive in riot gear with your shields and your batons and so on and so forth, and you close people in in this maneuver called kettling, which is to create a closed situation in which people can't get out, that sooner or later some violence is going to pick up, right? which you can then use by saying retrospectively, well, of course we had to show up in riot gear. Look at these crazy animals who are throwing bricks at us. At a larger scale, the traditional anarchist position is that that's what the, the state does. It creates individual competition and scarcity such that people will eventually look out for number one, and then they use that as an excuse afterwards to say, well, see, I told you that's why we needed people. Now, one of the interesting things about Hobbes is that, in some of the early social contract people, is that they will sometimes know that talking about European situations, you're talking about hundreds or thousands of years of government structures, which, when break down, can have civil war-like. But then they'll say something like, look at our new discoveries in America, and there we'll see the savage people are warring on each other. That's the state of nature just as well, right? And that's at a point where I think philosophers can also benefit, not just from looking to sociologists with regard to what happens in the aftermath of disasters, but also looking to anthropologists and ethnographers to what happens in uh, hunter-gatherer society or pre-state forager society. So what have we learned from um, anthropology and the social sciences about the behavior of people in like foraging societies uh, before there were nation states and so forth? Well, this is a really fascinating debate within anthropology itself as to whether the state that we call war is a universal human attribute, such that whenever you have human societies that come into conflict, war is a potential form of that relationship. There are three uh, dimensions to this controversy. Uh, The first is the biological one. 
given what we know about violence in other primates' uh, societies, most notoriously chimpanzees, if what intergroup chimpanzee violence, if that's worthy of the name of war, then we can see a sort of smooth continuity between their wars and our wars. The second is an archaeological question. Is there physical evidence from the archaeology record as to extensive pre-state war? And the third would be the ethnographic debates. The question there is, does the social structure of nomadic forager bands support the notion of extensive pre-state warfare? So let's take it uh, one by one. Then the biological question has to do with the clear genetic neighborhood between us and chimpanzees and the bonobos. So the bonobos are not quite the hippies of nature, but there's a different form of violence in their societies than there is in chimpanzee societies. What we see in chimpanzee society often is at the border between two bands, we will see coalitional raiding, that is a group of chimps. Males will ambush and pick off uh, one or two stray chimps from the other band, and it'll be a a bloody mess and a horrible uh, ambush. But that doesn't seem to happen in the bonobos. Now, we can look to the different structures, masculine-dominated chimpanzee society, female-dominated or female-organized society, and Bonobo society, there's quite a lot of debate in and around there. I think the anti-universal war position tries to push us towards a social structure argument rather than a genetic argument, because their trump card is going to be we're just as related to the bonobos. And bonobo society doesn't show the kind of warfare that chimp society does. Okay, so then the question is, archaeologically, Is there evidence of extensive free state war? Now, there's quite a technical debate among the archaeological anthropologists, but the uh, anti-position would say that the pro-position has cherry-picked the evidence, that there's lots and lots of sites in which you don't see crushed skulls in in any number, and if you do see a crushed skull but only one of them, then you can't distinguish that from murder versus war. So the anti-universal war people do not deny that murder and violence are possible in forager society. This would be silly. The question is, for them, and this shades into the next bit about ethnography, does the social structure of forager societies support war when we define war as anonymous group intergroup violence, such that anybody in the other group is fair game for anybody in my group, right, because of this conflict between groups. And what the ethnographers will find is probably not. What we do find, their claim is, we find individual violence within a group, right, and sometimes you'll see individual violence between the groups, but that is settled on an individualistic or vendetta basis, right? And often what you will see is that people within the group of the killer will themselves take steps against the killer and offer them as a peace offering to the other group. So in other words, kind of Hatfields and McCoy thing, except that 
One of the Hatfields kills one of the McCoys. What do the other Hatfields do? They kill or exile the killer McCoy and then present that evidence to the Hatfields and say, hey, look, we're trying to be peaceful. We don't want any fight, right? This was a mad dog. He ran crazy and we got rid of him for you. There's other anthropological evidence of you know um, being able to offer amends to that. Okay, so we've talked about these two kinds of situation. We've talked about how people behave in a crisis or disaster situation now, and we've also talked about how people used to behave in foraging societies thousands of years ago. And we've noted, I guess, some parallels between the way people behave in those two situations. The evidence that you've presented so far suggests that the default is a more cooperative kind of behavior. And I guess that raises the question, is this a behavior that we evolved in some way? Yes, this is a big uh, question in uh, the evolution of morality or evolution of ethics discussion. You can approach it again via a sort of evolutionary cost-benefit analysis. So if you stick with the level of gene selection, that is following the famous image that Richard Dawkins gave us in The Selfish Gene, more like just if we change our perspective to look at the gene level as the unit of selection, what do we find? Well, in that case, the question should be, how is it that prosociality or altruism, a closely related term, altruism would be helping behavior that also imposes a cost on the helper. How could that have evolved? It would seem that the genes that underlie the costly helping behaviors should have been weeded out of the population in favor of egoistic calculation. The traditional answer is kin selection, that is. There's a joke the guy once said, you know, I would sacrifice myself for two brothers or eight cousins. So there's a formula whereby the closeness of genetic relation can be used to calculate the amount of cost that you would be willing to undergo in order to allow part of your genes to go through, because we share our genes with our kins. Then the, the question is, well, people behave altruistically even with respect to non-kins. And then there's a fascinating argument that goes on here. It goes something like this. Well, we have tendencies towards false positives and false negatives in our detection of kins. You can make an evolutionary argument that we would have evolved a tendency towards false positives rather than false negatives. Why is that? Well, a false positive means that you identify someone as kin and help them, right? even if it imposes a cost on yourself. Well, the penalty for a false positive is that you might help someone who is not your kin. Okay, so that's a risk that you run. The penalty for a false negative, though, is drastic. A false negative would be that you do not identify someone who is your kin, right? And if you don't help somebody who is your kin because you falsely denied your kinship with them, that's a drastic penalty, right? So the increased risk of helping someone who is actually not your kin would be outweighed by the penalty for not helping a kin. So we've evolved a kind of loose or sloppy or leaky kin detection mechanism, often seen as just whoever you grew up with, whoever you're really familiar with, right? 
And that triggers a uh, kin protection behavior on your part. Slightly more complex would be questions of mutualism, that is when you could engage in a costly helping behavior along with someone else, expecting the benefits to come at the same time. Then you could have direct reciprocity in which I would help you and at some time delay you would help me back. Right? So I would incur a cost, I would increase the risk to my fitness, to my survival, to my ability to generate offspring, but in the expectation that the help that you would give me back at some future date would compensate for that. And then finally we get the other classic position would be indirect reciprocity or reputation. Right? So if I could help you, hoping that a third party would see my ability to help people, to be a good provider, to be brave, to fight tigers, and et cetera, et cetera, and that would increase my marriageability or mateability or something like that because people would say, hey, look at Pertevi, look how strong and brave he is. He helped fight that saber-toothed tiger. So the idea of an altruistic instinct or a cooperative instinct, I think, raises some interesting questions in the philosophy of biology about the nature of natural selection and in particular, whether natural selection operates on an individual creature or whether it operates on a larger kind of community of creatures. So can a trait only be selected for in an individual or can some traits be selected for at the level of an entire community of organisms? So suppose it could happen at the level of community. How exactly would that work? Good. Well, this is a live question. Uh, It was a debate for a long time. The four positions that we spelled out are attempts to account for the paradox or the seeming paradox of altruistic behavior having been selected for even though it looks like it shouldn't have been if you have gene selection. Then the question is group selection, which was written out of the canon for a number of years in the middle of the 20th century. However, Elliot Sober and David Sloan Wilson brought the question back up and argued that it is philosophically and scientifically respectable to talk about group selection under certain very specific circumstances. And now I think there's a healthy number of people who are willing to accept multi-level selection, that is, genes, organisms, groups. Now, what's fascinating about that is we can now go back to Darwin, who said in a very famous passage, often quoted, about the production of pro-social or altruistic behaviors, that in a group situation, a conflict situation, a group that had the correct ratio of selfish to altruistic warriors would outcompete, that is, defeat in battle, a group that had a uh, less than optimal ratio of altruists to egoists. So that's the question. Was war the selection pressure that somewhat, I don't want to say perversely, but maybe counterintuitively, it's war that's the selection pressure for our in-group pro-social behaviors versus our reluctance to give full human ethical status to outsiders. So you might think that the threat of war is the big pressure that sort of evolutionarily leads to cooperative behavior. You know, we want to live in a peaceful society, so we're going to cooperate with each other and, you know, set up these communities where we each 
undergo short-term personal sacrifices so that there's a you know perpetual state of like normal civilization where chaotic warfare doesn't reign. But if our inclinations in foraging societies were not particularly warlike and therefore war couldn't play the role of a selection pressure, then what was playing the role of a selection pressure leading to this cooperative, altruistic, pro-social instinct? Excellent question. I think we can look towards a notion that of scaffolding or nurturing a pro-sociality disposition within and across groups, even if it isn't war as the selection pressure. So there's a number of people I, I could talk about here, just briefly. A child psychologist by the name of Colin Trevarthen uses the term primary intersubjectivity. He's also joined by uh, Daniel Stern, who's a very famous uh, American child psychologist. And what Trevarthen is, towards the end of his career now, has developed a notion called communicative musicality. And he notices the rhythmic interchange between infant and caregiver, the primary caregivers. The plural will be, uh, I'll talk about the plural in a minute. But the sing-song, the rocking, the goo-goo-eyes, all set up a sort of rhythmic interchange and providing a support for the inchoate but still implicit subjectivity of the infant. So this is a big controversy about whether infants are just sort of immersed in a undifferentiated field with the mother as such that development is individuation from an undifferentiated whole or whether children have a kind of staticky, implicit, fragile, but nonetheless present intersubjectivity right from earliest parts. And what child-rearing practices do is to scaffold, protect, and help that to develop. So that's Trevarthen. All of these things are all controversial. Nonetheless, another person we could talk about would be Sarah Hurdy, H-R-D-Y, anthropologist, whose uh, last work is called Mothers and Others. She talks about cooperative breeding through a number of interesting ways about the development of theory of mind, of sympathy and empathy, emotional contagion, attraction of attention, provides a way for us to talk about pro-sociality and cooperation within groups without having war necessarily as a big selection pressure. And the last person, there could be others we could talk about, would be Kim Sterelny, whose book, The Evolved Apprentice, uses as its foil not really war, intergroup war, but what's called the Machiavellian intelligence hypothesis, such that what drives human cognitive or mental thought process evolution is the detection of cheaters and free riders, that is, people who don't pull their own weight, within a group. And his point is, if you look at the ethnographers, you know, it's not really that hard to find who's not pulling their weight when there's 100 people in the group, right? People are gathering fruits and nuts and berries, and uh, other people are going out to hunt. Other people are, you know, butchering the hunt if the people are lucky enough to win. That's not that hard to find who's 
cooperating and who isn't. What's interesting and complicated is how do we raise children such that they can be scaffolded into very complex cooperative behaviors like hunting, preparing food, washing food, and even to come back to Herdy then, child rearing. Child rearing is a skill. Right? It needs lots of uh, experienced mothers and grandmothers and uh, older sibs to help young caregivers to help the children. So there'll be a number of ways uh, to do that. One last person I want to mention, this will get us back to some of the philosophical implications, I think, of this discussion. It's a guy named Michael Tomasello who talks about does some contemporary uh, comparative infant development with humans and with uh, primates. And he claims to be able to show quite early cooperative behavior in human infants. There's a lot of debate about whether language intervenes, when and how, and how this shows up. But you can say that innate or instinctual for human beings can be cashed out in something like this. Shows up early and reliably in a wide variety of cross-cultural child-rearing practices. If we can show this innateness defined as reliable appearance in a wide variety of child-rearing practices, cultural child-rearing practices, then I think that we have some philosophical work to do, or we can bring that back to questions of human nature and even back to the relationship between human nature and politics that we started off with. So I do think that a naturalism defined not in terms of getting back to nature or we should go off and hunt on camping trips, but how should philosophy work together with the sciences? I don't necessarily like this kind of almost masochistic idea that we're the handmaidens of science and you know we're just going to follow behind and clean up their messes or something like that. I do think that philosophy can engage with a dialogue with sciences, helping both sides you know, in refining concepts, but also grounding our philosophical notions of politics and human nature with some real empirically verifiable results from sociology of disasters, ethnography of forging society, child development, psychology. All of these things can and should inform our philosophical work on these uh, basic questions that have been part of the philosophical question book since the Greeks. John Protevi, thanks very much for an interview, which I'm sure was made all the more pleasant by our mutual pro-social instinct. Well, thank you very much, Matt. I really enjoyed this. And it is true that one of the things that human beings really like to do is to talk to each other. So uh, it's very rare that you find people who don't really enjoy other people's company. It does happen. There are recluses and uh, misanthropes, but uh, luckily they are few and far between. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.